Hi, this is Sarah McCaslin with Forgotten Sheep. And for this podcast, our topic is going to be Catherine Kuhlman, who has always been one of my favorites. As a little kid, I grew up with my mom having her books scattered all over the place. And there were always very beautiful pictures of her on the back in these exquisite gowns. And um, 1970s would be the era the pictures were taken. And they were just beautiful clothes. And I always thought she was absolutely fascinating looking. She looked very dramatic. And I guess if there's one word that really does summarize Catherine Coleman, it was dramatic. Um, She was known for her massive healing services, and she was a very practical and down-to-earth Bible teacher. And that's something that I just love so much. She didn't act like the Bible was something that was deep and hidden that You had to have this special insight from this special prophet or this special person to understand. She firmly believed in the Holy Spirit as our guide and as our Bible teacher. And she made it accessible to everyone, whether you'd been saved five minutes or 50 years. So that's one of the things I really liked about her. She wrote a lot of books on the subject of faith and healing. And as I mentioned earlier, she was known for holding healing services that grew to be quite massive. Many of them uh, were in California in the 70s. Now, her ministry was rocked by scandal more than once, and Catherine would manage to rise up more than once and continue on. She was embraced by various denominations. I would love to say she was embraced by all people, but there were certain groups that were very suspicious of her. There were certain groups that would have uh, that called her services delusional. And um, the reason that my own mother, who lived in Los Angeles in the uh, early to mid-70s, the reason she never went to one of Catherine Kuhlman's services is her pastor had told the congregation to stay away from them, primarily because of the healing that was taking place and because of people speaking in tongues and people falling over when they were prayed for. So, those who did love Catherine Kuhlman were fiercely loyal, and they didn't care what denomination she was. All denominations, it seemed like, could be found in her services, from uh, Catholic nuns to, uh, I believe they were called the, uh, the Jesus Freaks, all different types, the whole spectrum. Now, many people have claimed to have inherited Catherine Kuhlman's mantle, which is a reference to Elijah passing his mantle on to Elisha, which symbolized Elisha receiving the office of a prophet. Now, I said there's a lot of people that have claimed to receive her mantle, but as someone who has closely studied Catherine Kuhlman's life and has read books on the various Tetra teachings, I can assure you there has not been anyone to, that has received her mantle. And if they did receive it, they did not live in it, which is sad. We so need a move of the Lord like that again. But let's go ahead and dive in and talk about Catherine Kuhlman. Now, there's been some debate about when exactly Catherine Kuhlman was born. Christians are supposed to be honest in all their dealings, and one of Catherine's faults was a lack of honesty around her birthday. I somehow suspect she purposely confused herself. Um, The official records show that she was born on May 9, 1907, 
in Concordia, Missouri, Catherine Johanna Kuhlman, a good German name. Her father's name was Joseph, and her mother's name was Emma. And if you do a search online for pictures of Catherine, especially when she was young, you'll notice that she always looks full of mischief, and her mother always looks exhausted. And that's not a reflection on uh, her mother's natural beauty. It's merely a reflection on what that poor woman endured being Catherine's mother. So her mother was the one that was strict and her dad was the one that was loving and they didn't seem to be able in any way to strike a balance. She often felt her mother relished her strictness too much and her dad was probably too lenient. Well, no doubt her dad was very lenient with her. He was her favorite. And by the way, as a little kid, she went by Katie. He was Katie's favorite. And little Katie um, grew up in a big two-story White House that her family was very proud of, and that included her. Now, one of the interesting stories from when she was a baby was her paternal Aunt Gusty. Now, I think we all have probably known an Aunt Gusty. She did not approve of Emma Kuhlman naming the little baby Catherine, even though, as I alluded to, it was a good, solid German name. She said Kate was a name for a mule. In fact, a family member had been kicked to death by a mule named Kate. It was shameful to name that child Kate. She, she went on and on, and Emma said, well, it was a fine name, and the baby's name was Catherine, not Kate. And Aunt Gusty's final word was this, it's going to be bad enough growing up redheaded. And yep, Catherine Coleman was redheaded. But to have to go through life with a name like Kate is more than any child should have to bear. Well, it's been said by some of her biographers, and I believe by Catherine herself, that a name associated with mule-headedness was peculiarly accurate for Catherine because she was always very determined and did indeed border on stubbornness. Pretty much, no matter what happens, you could never keep Catherine down. And as I said, you can look online and find some interesting pictures of uh, little Catherine with her family. Most of them, when she was quite young, included a big white bow that I swear was bigger than that child's head. There's something about putting bows on little girls. But you'll see here in pictures with her dad. He looks very dashing with dark hair and a... Uh, long or a mustache that grows it looks like it goes down to his uh to his um, chin his jawline well Catherine had an older sister Myrtle she was 13 when Catherine was born Catherine had a younger brother named Joe nicknamed boy or Cooley and as we mentioned Emma Coleman was the disciplinarian and the dad left all the discipline up to Emma which caused a lot of problems and probably no doubt caused a lot of hostility between Catherine and Emma. Now, Catherine was very mischievous. An excellent example of her early mischief was throwing a surprise party for her mother. Now, that sounds like just an awesome thing to do, doesn't it? I believe what Catherine meant well. She was nine years old, and she knew how much her mother loved parties. But guys, that was parties she knew about. Okay, so this particular year, her mother Emma's birthday fell on a Monday, which happened to coincide with wash day. So you can imagine Emma's utter horror when her friends from church show up. 
They were dressed to the nines, bearing cakes and goodies, and here was Mrs. Kuhlman. In her oldest dress, absolutely drenched with sweat and laundry water, her hair up but hanging in strands and stuck to her face and neck. <laughs> now, I doubt she was ever convinced that Catherine planned this party out of the goodness of her heart. So she was a she was a mess as a little kid, and she never really stopped being mischievous. When Catherine was about 13 years old, there were a series of revival meetings being held in Concordia by a Baptist evangelist. So she and her mother, they attended all the meetings. And as the meetings continued, Catherine noticed some of her friends going to the altar. And the more friends of hers that went to the altar, the more uncomfortable she got. And then one Sunday morning, Catherine was standing beside her mother, and the minister gave the invitation, the altar call. He asked anyone to come forward that wanted to commit their lives to the Lord, that wanted to be forgiven of their sins and uh, be saved. And something happened in Catherine. She said she began weeping from the very depths of her being, and it was so intense that her entire body began to shake. Catherine said later that, like many in her church, her relationship with God had been completely a social one. It consisted of church meetings, missionary society meetings, church lunches, church banquets, those types of things. And I think this is such a dangerous thing to happen, especially for those of us who in the United States live in the Bible Belt where many times church is just part of being part of being and I'll, I'll let me let me phrase this a little differently um here at where I'm at in East Texas it's almost like going to church or at least professing a belief in God is part of being civilized and anyone who doesn't is viewed as uncivilized and looked down upon or harassed in many instances, certainly not in all instances, but I know where that has happened. And it's so easy to fall into that, where church takes the place of a relationship with God, where a belief in church doctrines takes the place of a faith in God and a faith in His Word, where a relationship with church and church people and church activities takes the place of a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. And there, standing in that pew, only 13 or 14 years old, Catherine received that revelation. She suddenly understood that having a relationship with Jesus Christ was more than church. That there were sins in her heart and life, even though she was young and... Um, protected. There were sins that she knew that were wrong, that she wanted to have forgiven. She received that revelation. Catherine said it was not until that day, even though she grew up in church and had a religious mother, it wasn't until that day she realized there was more to a relationship with God. And Catherine said she dropped the hymn book from her hands into the rack on the pew in front of her. And she said the intensity in her heart, the desire for the Lord 
The desire for God was so strong in her heart, she didn't just walk to the altar, she ran to the altar. And she said there, she dropped her heads in her hand and wept so loudly she probably could be heard over the entire church, but she didn't care. There was a transaction taking place between her and the Lord. There was a relationship forming. And she said one older woman leaned over the pew and patted Catherine on the shoulder and said, well, you've always been a good girl. No doubt she intended to provide comfort, but she didn't see, she, she didn't realize the depth of revelation the Lord had just given Catherine. And if you're listening this day, you can receive that same revelation. You can experience a relationship with the Lord, whether you're a kid or whether you're elderly. That, that offer that the Lord extended to Catherine that day to be saved, he extends still. Those words that that woman said, you've been a good girl. Guys, it doesn't matter how good or bad we have been. We all need Jesus Christ. We all need to be born again. She said those words brought no comfort to her. She needed Jesus. And Catherine said when she finally arose from the pew, she was changed for life. She knew it. She said later as she walked home, everything seemed to have changed. And she floated all the way. When she got home, she ran straight to her beloved Papa. She rushed to him, eager to share what had happened to her Papa. Something's happened to me. Jesus has come into my heart. And his response was a simple, I'm glad. He had never been a religious man. Now, Here's something else we always need to remember. When the Lord saves us, he doesn't just make us all cookie cutters. He doesn't take our personality away from us. He doesn't turn us into some kind of zombies. We are still who we are in our very essence. And Catherine was mischievous when she went up to the altar. And Catherine was mischievous when she came back from the altar. So <laughs> later that week, the evangelist asked the young people who had been saved to come forward and tell the church what they planned to do with their lives. And I can just imagine Catherine's mother sitting over there thinking, oh my goodness, what is she going to say? What's she going to say? They get to Catherine without missing a beat. She said, I'm going to find me a good-looking preacher man and marry him. Then she turned and winked at the single evangelist. <laughs> I cannot imagine how utterly horrified her mother was. So that's the story of Catherine's uh, start in the Christian walk. Now, a lot of people probably just laughed and passed that over as nothing. <laughs> Catherine's mother did not laugh. Uh, for one reason, that's pretty much what her sister Myrtle had done. Her sister Myrtle had married the last evangelist that came through. And uh, this comment coming from Catherine was probably even more entertaining, but not to Emma. She knew that Catherine may well have not been joking. And it's said when she turned and winked at that pastor, it was a very theatrical wink. So um, let me point something out here about Catherine. As I said, Catherine Kuhlman was nothing if not dramatic, if not theatrical, if not flamboyant. All right. And... 
someone, she was doing a, a message at Earl Roberts University, and I believe it was 1975, and her sister Myrtle was there, sitting up in the uh, balcony in the back, and Myrtle's sitting there, and someone turns around to their friend sitting next to them and says, I just don't like her. She is just so dramatic. It's so phony. Something to that effect. And Myrtle leans forward and says, I will have you know, she was that dramatic from the time she was a child. That's just who Catherine is. So, you can imagine that theatrical wink and how she smiled after she said that. And I remember as I was um, looking for pictures of Catherine from around that time, I found one and she was just... Uh, absolutely adorable uh, teenager, very cute, very sweet looking. As she grew older, she grew more troublesome, all right? Now, she was a Christian, but that doesn't mean that we're not going to end up making mistakes. We're not going to end up doing things wrong. We're not going to end up getting into trouble, things like that. Um, probably best explained in Catherine's own words that she was far from perfect and she could look back on her life and see things that she did that she shouldn't have done st uh, different things so that's a, a encouragement to us that when we fall down the devil will tell us we're down for the count or well you can't be a Christian and have done that that's when we go to Jesus we take it to Jesus we ask his forgiveness his Bible tells us he takes it and takes whatever it was that we've done when we ask for forgiveness, and he throws it in his sea of forgetfulness, never to be remembered against us anymore. It's gone. It's like it did not happen. That is the power of the blood of Jesus. That is the power of the salvation and relationship that he offers us. So, as I said, she was a troublesome teen. Not that she was involved in any, any wickedness, but, you know, she was mischievous. She was probably rebellious against her mother. and Her mother felt that Catherine's only hope was church, and so she encouraged Catherine to be even more deeply involved in church activities. So there's nothing wrong with church activities and going to church and being involved in these things and having a church family. It's when we let that take the place of our relationship with Jesus Christ. That's when it becomes a problem. So her mother was very right in that. She was good to encourage these things. There's nothing wrong with that. But we have to remember that does not take the place of a vibrant, dynamic, living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So her mother was absolutely at her wits' end with Catherine. And by the time Catherine was 16, she had finished all the education that was available to her in Concordia. Now, keep in mind, she would have turned 16 around 1923. And so, she had done all she could there. She hadn't done too well in subjects like math. And she was about to be unleashed on the world during the age of flappers and prohibition. So, think back in your mind to that 14-year-old girl saying she's going to find her a good-looking preacher man and marry him and then winking at the single evangelist. And imagine that her being unleashed on the world during the flapper era, okay? Myrtle, knew, her older sister Myrtle, who's 13 years older than her, recognized the danger that Catherine was in. She came up with a plan. Now, I love this. It was not a plan to imprison Catherine and force her into a certain way of life. That's what I love about this. Her plan was for her to come on the road with she and her evangelist husband, Everett, uh, 
Everett, I believe it was Everett Parrott. So it was to actually give Catherine a little bit more freedom, expand her horizons. Myrtle felt very, very strongly that Catherine was to accompany them on the evangelistic field. She, she said later that she sensed it was very, very important, more important than she could ever know, but it was so important. And Catherine's mother, Emma, also sensed that this was a big crossroads. And she knew that if 16-year-old Catherine left with Myrtle, she would never return. Now, that's a hard decision for a parent to make. Even though she was strict and Catherine felt like she was overly strict, her like her papa did, I, th you know, I don't doubt that Emma Coleman did love her and want her to be protected, wanted her to be safe, wanted her, well, she might be debatable what kind of happy she wanted her, but she didn't want uh, Catherine to be heartbroken or disappointed. And so she was torn. Catherine herself sensed that there was something at work that was more powerful than she. And she and Myrtle said she was unusually serious when she and her sister boarded the train, and she said that train would take her further than she could imagine. Now, after joining Myrtle and Everett on the Sawdust Trail, that's an old term they use for the evangelistic uh, evangelistic field. It refers back to the days when uh, outdoor meetings were held and they would often have sawdust sprinkled under the tent uh, between uh, pews and up at the front or between the seating and up at the front. That's where they get the term sawdust trail. So that's what that means. They just, She realized that their marriage was rocky and she felt bad for intruding. And it also disillusioned her that having a husband wasn't the glamorous idea she had envisioned. <laughs> now, she tried her best to help with household chores, and she would spend free time with her sister, and they would go window shopping in all the towns they visited. And she and uh, Myrtle attended all of Everett's meetings, no exceptions. He insisted that they be there. Myrtle would take up the offering and play the piano, and then as Catherine put it, sit there and try to pretend that she hadn't heard that same sermon a hundred times before. Sometimes Catherine and Myrtle would sing a duet. And then one night, one night Everett asked Catherine to give her testimony. Now, if you hear Catherine Coleman speak, you will feel and you'll hear in her voice a very powerful authority. That's something that at least in the... Um, Pentecostal church we call the anointing. It means that it is a special authority and a special gift that the Lord gave her to do something he called her to do. And so even in giving her testimony that time, there was an anointing that even Everett had to admit that rested on Catherine. Now, she did do it in her typical dramatic fashion because that's who Catherine was. And again, I keep feeling this is something I want to emphasize. The Lord wants us to be who we are. We don't have to change our personality to fit something or to fit someone's expectations, and that includes the Lord. So the, when the Lord called Catherine to the ministry, he knew that Catherine was dramatic and flamboyant and mischievous and sometimes... Uh, 
impetuous, but he was going to use all of that. So, in typical dramatic fashion, she gave her testimony, and it was well-received by the audience. There was an anointing on Catherine, an authority in the words that she spoke that Everett sensed and he felt threatened by. And he promised over and over that he was going to let Catherine preach someday, but he really had no intention of doing so, and he never did. And soon it was time for Catherine to head back to Concordia. Her clothes were packed, and her dad, her papa, had sent her her ticket, and she and Myrtle were there looking at her suitcase, and Myrtle didn't feel like it was the right thing to do. And surprisingly, even though he felt threatened by her, Everett agreed. This was not the right thing to do. So Everett was um, being selfish when he was feeling threatened by Catherine. Okay? He was very human. That didn't mean that he could not still hear from the Lord. And he definitely heard from the Lord that Catherine did not need to be leaving. And I love what he and Myrtle did. Again, there is respect for Catherine's independence and her responsibility as an adult, they let Catherine decide what she wanted to do, and Catherine herself made the decision to stay with them. And it would turn out that Myrtle's influence was exactly what Catherine needed, and she was a lot kinder than their mother. She was still stern and very strict with Catherine. Apparently you had to be, but she had a lot more kindness in her heart. Now, I mentioned Catherine's call to preach. We haven't specifically addressed that. I absolutely love this story. The Lord called Catherine earlier on in 1923 to preach. Myrtle discovered her weeping beside a bench behind the evangelistic tent. And Myrtle didn't know what to make of it. She didn't know what was wrong. Was Catherine upset? Was she scared? Had someone done something to her? She didn't know what to do. And mind you, she was Catherine's sister, not her mother. So, she, not knowing what to do, she sat down on the bench that Catherine was draped over and placed Catherine's head in her lap and just let Catherine cry. As Catherine sat there sobbing, she said, All those people, all those people who did not receive Jesus as their Savior. She explained to Myrtle that she was brokenhearted over all the people who ignored the altar call, but who needed to be saved. She said, I must preach. I will never be satisfied until I do my share. And that was when Catherine was called. She was called by the Lord, opening her eyes to see the people that needed to be saved. And she, when she saw that, her heart was broken. But rather than running from that grief, she embraced it and opened her life up to the Lord Jesus Christ to use her to answer her own prayers with that, to use her to reach people. And that she did. So for five years, Catherine would travel with Myrtle and Everett. And during that five years, she learned firsthand the many practical aspects of the ministry. There was a lot of things that had to go on. You know, they would receive an invitation. Well, what facilities did they have there? 
Where would they set up the tent? Arrangements often had to be made to rent or lease the space that the tent would be on. They also had to have um, some kind of housing or uh, motel room or some kind of facilities for the pastor or the evangelist and the pianist and all of that to stay. There would have to be posters prepared and printed up, flyers that would have to be put out. Um, that means there was printing expenses. Someone had to work with a local printer to get that done. Uh, they had to have a piano. They had to get the piano set up in the tent. They had to set up seating. They had to set up altars. And again, the sawdust trail. Then they had um, lighting. They would have to, you know, get things set up with electricity. There was so much that went into this. And so when Catherine was answering that call, she knew what she was getting into. The Lord let her see what all of this was about. He didn't blindly call her into something. He let her get a, he let her see the practical aspects of this. So, during this time, Catherine met someone who was going to be a very good friend, a concert pianist named Helen Gilliford, who was serving as Everett's uh, pianist in the church meetings. Now, uh Catherine was watching as Myrtle and Everett's marriage was fast falling apart. Okay, just because people are Christians does not mean they're not going to have serious marital issues. And it doesn't mean that divorce will never occur. Okay, Catherine recognized the problem and Helen, the concert pianist, that was his uh, church uh, pianist, did not want to be a part of whatever it was doing. So Catherine and Helen... Get this, they were invited to stay and hold meetings themselves in Twin Falls, Idaho. And that is how Catherine Kuhlman became an evangelist. Now, that meant Catherine and Helen were going to be staying behind and holding meetings and Myrtle and Everett would be going forward. So as Myrtle left Catherine and Helen behind, Catherine asked for a check to cover the cost of a new yellow dress to preach in. Now, I had mentioned earlier about Catherine and her beautiful gowns that she wore. And I'm not talking about ball gowns, just beautiful clothes, beautiful dresses. That was a weakness of Catherine's, but a lot of people donated uh, things to her. So, uh, and I'm going to go off on a tangent here. I was prowling around on Google today looking for a, a good picture of Catherine. And I saw a thing called, the I believe it was the Catherine Kuhlman Dress Collection. It was this beautiful African-American model wearing one of Catherine's dresses. And I thought, oh, wow, that is so cool. So her dresses, yeah, this was the beginning of Catherine's hang up with dresses. <laughs> it started off very, uh, sorry, my words are a little slow sometimes. It started off very small. She asked for a yellow, she called it a yellow pulpit dress. Now, Mar Myrtle said, Catherine, you will never be able to afford the kind of dress you want for $10 because Catherine had always wanted the best, and in growing up, her father spoiled her. I would dare say her father spoiled her rotten, and she got whatever, pretty much whatever she wanted. And so, Myrtle's like, Catherine, $10 is not going to be enough. But Catherine had a plan in mind. She knew where she had seen, if I'm remembering this correctly, she knew where she had seen some fabric on sale, and she got herself a yellow pulpit dress with fluffy sleeves, and the dress came to her ankles. So that was the yellow dress. <laughs> she said she wore that for every service she preached in for uh, weeks. Of course, she washed it in between, but um, 
was really funny. She said one time that as they were wrapping up a service, this alcoholic, or I shouldn't say alcoholic, a drunken man came in. And she heard him say, oh, Lord, not that yellow dress again. <laughs> That's when she decided it was time to see about a different color dress. I, I get tickled at that story. I really do. Um, so Catherine and Helen build themselves as God's girls and headed out on the solitary trail all by themselves. Now, Catherine firmly believed that the gospel were preached in its simplicity, sorry, in its simplicity, people would come and lives would be changed. So that is what Catherine focused on, the gospel. She kept it simple. She kept it straightforward. She kept it wholly biblical. She never in all the stuff that I've read of hers, I never saw where she was deviating from simple, straightforward Bible teaching. So they held meetings for six weeks in Idaho. And I believe she wore that yellow dress every night. And those meetings were packed to capacity. Now, on the second night, Catherine fell and went and broke her leg. So she was put in a cast and told to stay off it for two weeks. But Catherine, being uh, mule-headed, being very strong-willed and determined and having faith that the Lord would take care of her, she um, kept on preaching anyways. Up there, that big old cast underneath her beautiful yellow pulpit dress. Now, even at this early stage of her ministry, Catherine already had her critics. They said, well, the only reason anyone's coming to your ministry meetings is because you and Helen are very attractive young women. Doesn't that just sound like people? Um, with Catherine, as the uh, old saying goes, she just let it roll off like water off a duck's back. Sometimes, they said, Helen and Catherine lingered too long at the altar service with men who were supposedly seeking God. Really? And Helen, who was older than Catherine, managed to help Catherine steer clear of these types of problems. She helped Catherine to avoid bringing any kind of uh, scandal on there, what they were doing. Then Myrtle, her sister, heard how things were going and sent a very tersely worded telegram to Catherine. And it said very simply, be sure you have your theology straight. Now, Catherine said in later years she did not know what theology was, much less if she had it straight. But all of that would come in good time. Catherine firmly believed that all she had to do was preach the word faithfully notice emphasis on the word faithfully and the lord would help her keep her theology straight now catherine would prove to be a fantastic bible teacher down to earth practical fully grounded in the bible but there was still a long and difficult road ahead of her catherine said that she learned about the things of god she learned her theology in prayer with her bible open before her and she said she herself never went to bible school but she never discouraged others from doing so she never made light of having a solid bible school education she didn't act like uh, what you would learn about the bible in such a setting was useless never 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 in fact guys i was just listening today a sermon that she did at oral roberts university where she was encouraging these young people with their you know their education so she would study Bibles for hours at a time, and often at night it was icy cold, but she would still be there huddled up at the blanket studying her Bible. That 
was her passion. I know she loved beautiful dresses. She loved being dramatic, but her true passion was the Lord and studying the Word of God. Now, during the Great Depression, Catherine felt led to head to Denver, her and Helen Gilliford. I should say she and Helen Gilliford, if I get my grammar correct here. Now, by this time, she had acquired a business manager to help her with getting set up in these different towns and helping keep the finances in order and uh, very open. And she said, you go up there to Denver like you got a million dollars. We're going to take that city by storm. Dramatic. The man was taken aback and said, but Catherine, we don't have a million dollars. We only have five dollars and that's all. And you know what Catherine's response was? And this, this wasn't one of the times she was being dramatic. This response was not. She, this is something she absolutely, totally, completely believed. If we serve a God who is limited to our finances, then we're serving the wrong God. Listen to that. If we serve a God who is limited to our finances, then we're serving the wrong God. He is not limited to what we have what we are. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that good to know that the Lord is not limited to what we have or what we are? In later years, she would say, if he can use somebody like me to bring souls into the kingdom, he can certainly use our five dollars and multiply it just as easily as he did the loaves and fishes. So, now, what did she mean by her instructions to her business manager, Hewitt? That was his name, by the way. Find the biggest building. Get a nice piano for Helen the pianist to play. Fill up the place with chairs. Take out newspaper and radio ads. And her motto was, this is God's business, and we're going to do it God's way. Big. And I don't know, I may, end up dis I may have had this further on in my notes, but there's a story about... When Catherine um, was first getting, or early on when she was getting flyers prepared for one of her meetings, and the shop that did it, the print shop, was just haphazard with it, and I think it had some misspellings, and it looked awful, and Catherine was like, no, no, this is not acceptable. He said, well, you're just a religious organization. I mean, what does it matter? And she said, oh, you don't understand. She says, I work for God, and God's work deserves the best that we have and I want you to go back and I want you to do that with the best ability that you have and I that motto always struck me and that's I try when I do things like my podcast and my blog when I've done the missionary talks I have tried to follow that because that really impressed me at a young age if we're doing it for the Lord it should look good it should look professional it should sound professional, even though, I'm, alas, my podcasts aren't super professional. Um, but I try to do it in a way that is good quality. So that's what Catherine believed. It should be good quality. We should give it our best. It's nothing for the Lord should be done haphazard or sloppily. So she headed to Denver. Hewlett followed her instructions. He promised to pay for the building and chair rental at the end of the revival. Guys, get this. The revival campaign that was scheduled to last for two weeks lasted for five years. And soon there were services every single day. And there's a picture from one of her uh, services there, I believe in Denver. 
And as you look at the picture of the church taken from the back, it's absolutely packed. The building is packed. So that was that was her uh, heading into Denver. <laughs> and around um, around 1934, she experienced a really the biggest heartache of her entire life. You remember her papa that she absolutely adored. He, he never got to hear her preach. When Catherine was only 27, she received a phone call informing her that her father had been seriously hurt. They had been trying to reach her for two days, but snow and ice had caused the lines to be down. Turns out her dad had been walking down an icy street at night. Um, he was running an errand for her mother. No doubt she would go on and have issues with feeling her mother was responsible for his death. Um, he had gone, I think, to pick up some eggs. And um, he was going down, uh, on the way back. He had dropped the eggs and had gone back to pick up some more. And uh, he had been walking down an icy street. He was deaf, mostly deaf. He probably did not hear the car approaching. He was hit by a car. His skull had been fractured, and he remained in a coma for two days. Now, when they called and told Catherine, apparently somebody may have chickened out on telling her that her father was dead. And so Catherine thought he was just in a coma, and she risked life and limb driving from Denver, Colorado, back to Concordia, uh, Idaho. And to say that she was heartbroken would be a major understatement. Her heart was shattered. She got there and that's when she realized her father was dead. And she said it was just the Lord's angels that she even made it there alive because she was flying low on icy roads and, and all kinds of inclement weather. And, uh, she had a struggle with hate. Hate began to take root. And again, Catherine will was be the first to tell you she was not perfect. But she followed Jesus with everything she had. So she began to struggle with hatred. Hatred toward those she felt were responsible for taking her papa from her. Um, her family brought suit against the young man that hit her father. But she refused to be a part of that. Um, by that time, she had talked long and hard with the Lord about this repeatedly. She saw this root of hatred taking hold. She recognized it for what it was. And she took it to the Lord. And um, there's an old term for what happened. It's an old term. I know it goes back to my, grand, my great-grandmother's days. She prayed through, which meant that she brought this hatred that she had before the Lord. She didn't pretend it wasn't there. She didn't try to gloss it over. She didn't say, well, because I'm a Christian, this must not be hatred. I'll call it something else. She just took it before the Lord and told him how she felt. And as she brought it before the Lord, no doubt repeatedly, and prayed and sought the Lord, she got victory over that hatred. She got free of it. She was able to forgive those that were responsible for her father's death. 
And it was, hatred is a bondage. It imprisons us. It probably does little to no damage to the person that our hatred is for, but it does untold damage to us. And guys, if somebody anointed and called of God and successful in the eyes of the church like Catherine was, if someone like that can have hatred take hold in her heart, you know we can too. And we need to do what Catherine did and just tell Jesus exactly what's going on. And don't hide it from him. Remember in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve had sinned, before they had sinned, they would go walking with the Lord. And then after they had sinned, um, they were hiding from him. That's the worst thing we can do. If we have committed a sin, if we know there is sin in our lives, if we know there is something in our heart or soul that is grieving to the Holy Spirit, and we recognize it as that, don't hide from the Lord. That's the time when you go to him and you be open and honest. The Bible tells us he will forgive us our sins. So... That was one of the first, the first of many heartaches that Catherine would face. Within a few years of her father's death, uh, she went on and established the Denver Revival Tabernacle. So her vision, I probably, I should say the vision the Lord gave her was to have a non-denominational revival center that she would use as her headquarters. From there, she would travel all over the United States, and she would have other preachers and ministers on her staff, and that's what she did. She regularly invited other ministers and Bible teachers to come and preach. She didn't see this as her ministry. She saw this as the Lord's ministry, and he would use who he wanted to use in this. So, uh, now we're getting to an uncomfortable part of the discussion of Catherine's life, Okay. One of these ministers that she invited was a very handsome evangelist in a troubled marriage, Burroughs Waltrip. And Burroughs Waltrip would nearly be her destruction. Now, he was a very handsome minister. The pictures I've seen of him, uh, he honestly looks kind of like a movie star. Very dashing and handsome. He was a 38-year-old evangelist nicknamed the Louisiana Pulpiteer. He was married with two boys, but he divorced his wife on the ground that she was on the ground of cruelty, and then he wanted her to have custody of the boys. Guys, even though divorce can and does happen among Christians, divorce can always an ugly can always cause problems. Now, being someone that absolutely loves and adores Catherine Coleman, even though she passed away long before I was born, I get angry with Burroughs Waltrip. He was older than her. He was, I feel like he took advantage of her. But moving on, he was married when he began to preach at the Denver Tabernacle that Catherine Coleman founded and headed and head. And he brought his boys and wife along, and, you know, uh, he was preaching. And after he divorced, he set up his own revival center. Well, that's good, in Mason City, Iowa, named Radio Chapel. And he reciprocated uh, Catherine's behavior. He invited her there regularly to speak. And 
and apparently sparks began to fly between the two evangelists. And her home church in Denver uh, Tabernacle began to feel neglected because she was spending more and more time in Iowa. And then Burl Waltrip, Burl's Waltrip proposed, and Catherine accepted. Okay, he was 38 and she was 31, although <clears throat> she claimed she was 26, which is not good. I'm not going to excuse that. The vast majority of her friends knew this was a mistake. They saw red flags all over the place, especially with her being an evangelist. And they did their dead-level best to talk Catherine out of this. At that time, divorce was frowned on in the church, super frowned on in the church. Some denominations uh, would kick you out of the ministry if you were licensed with them and got a divorce i mean this is serious very serious especially at that time not only was it in the church but it was also in society and it was frowned upon just as much to marry a divorced person at that time and burroughs burroughs got into some extra biblical teaching uh, which is a nice way of saying he was teaching things that were not in the bible and he had convinced himself and this is so dangerous when we start convincing ourselves of something that's not biblical. He convinced himself that a marriage wasn't real unless the two people loved each other when they were married. Therefore, he had never been married. That's not good, guys. That's not good. Catherine announced to her Denver congregation that she and Burroughs were going to be married and were combining their ministries. She didn't mention marriage, but they knew what she meant. They knew they had heard the rumors, and it was said a ghostly hush fell over the congregation. Red flag, red flag. Some had long felt that Burroughs divorced his wife because he had his eye on Catherine all along. It could be, you know, she was a very beautiful, young, red-headed, single woman, and she had a very effective, very successful ministry. And I could make all kinds of surmises about what Burroughs, Waltrip's motives were, but there's no way any of us know but him. And so I'm going to leave that alone now. Now, Catherine went on to explain to her congregation that she and Burroughs would split their time between Denver and Madison City. But then still, the congregation felt like Catherine was making a mistake. Now, remember I said that perhaps being named after an animal with a reputation for being stubborn was maybe a good fit for Catherine. Catherine ignored the voices of her longtime friends and supporters. She insisted that Christians should hear directly from God, and I agree with that, and said anything else was bondage to man. Mm. We always should seek word of counsel from uh, there's nothing wrong with seeking counsel from other christians from people that you know are committed to god and hear from the lord people that you know personally she's this would turn out to be a weak, weakness throughout Catherine's ministry a refusal to submit to others again she was very very human and she was determined to marry burroughs and no one was going to stop her Guys, whenever we get in a situation we are determined to do something and nobody's going to stop us, that's usually a red flag. 
that we're getting off on the wrong track. Friends and colleagues tried to get her to see that marrying a divorce minister at that time in the 1930s was going to have a negative impact on her ministry. Now, mind you, that's like a 1930s. It's like 90 years ago. Oh, that's a long time. So keep in mind the culture at that time. She refused to see it, and she would regret this choice, this decision for the rest of her life. She would regret it. It came dangerously close to derailing her ministry, but it didn't destroy her or her ministry or her calling. Now, when we make up our mind to do something that's not in God's will, it's going to affect us spiritually. One of the things that her pianist, Helen Guilford, noticed was Catherine was losing the anointing that she'd always had. But she still insisted that she was going to get married and had convinced herself that this was God's will. How many times have we done something and convinced ourselves it was God's will and it was not? Now, when it came time to get married, Catherine actually fainted partway through the marriage ceremony. I'm not going to say red flag. <laughs> that night during the festivities, she received a phone call from Denver Revival Tabernacle that reminds you she had found it. Uh, they informed her that she was no longer welcome. And that had to be so upsetting. Then two weeks later after their marriage, Walt, uh, Burl's Waltrip's ministry began to fall apart. His radio chapel, which was truly a one-of-a-kind church building, ended up in serious debt. And it was like when he married Catherine, all the creditors decided to collect at once. Burroughs had already had legal trouble because of sizable donations made by one of his members. Again, I'm not going to reflect on him or his choices or what he did right or wrong. He decided he and Catherine should resign and leave Radio Chapel in other hands so that uh, that church could go forward. I respect him for that. I really do. That was, a th I think... I think he and Catherine were beginning to realize these were the repercussions of stepping outside of God's will. Guys, we cannot step outside of God's will without there being repercussions. Yes, we can confess our sins and they will be forgiven, but that doesn't mean that we don't suffer the repercussions. Now, in reality, um, biographers of, both, uh, of Catherine have gone through what went on with Burroughs Waltrip and said he had not done anything evil or underhanded. He just had bad judgment when it came to handling church finances. And guys, believe me, some of these people that have written about Catherine, if they could find something on Burroughs Waltrip that was illegal, they definitely would have made it uh, very public. But it was bad judgment. Now, the Denver Tabernacle began to split into factions, as did Radio Chapel. Some people, and it happened, some people were so disappointed in Catherine that they let it influence their relationship with the Lord. That's not Catherine's fault. That's on them. They made a choice, but that doesn't mean that Catherine is completely blameless in that. If we let 
a minister, no matter how godly and anointed and close to the Lord they are, if we let them become our focus, we can end up like these individuals where when they fall, we give up our confidence in God. We should never do that. We're all human. We only worship the Lord Jesus Christ. We only worship God and not a man. Um, her marriage to a divorced man gave her critics ammo to attack her ministry. As Christians, we should try to provide the enemy with as little ammo as possible. Okay. Undoubtedly, there were those who refused to hear her speak because of this. They'll answer to God for that. Okay. As Christians, the Bible very clearly teaches we are to avoid the very appearance of evil. Our lives are not our own. They belong to the Lord. Whatever we do, we must do as unto the Lord. We must consider what effect our actions may have on other people. Catherine was a, would soon learn the hard lesson that you cannot expect God's blessings if you are not willing to live by his teachings. Far too many times, we as Christians, we decide we're going to do something Instead of saying, Lord, is this your will? We say, oh, Lord, I'm going to do this. Please bless it. That does not work that way. We cannot say, oh, Lord, bless this mess. Now, he may help us get disentangled from that mess. He will help us get back on the right track and on the right path and forgive us. But we can't just go off and do our own thing and then think we have a right to expect the Lord to bless it. Catherine said she had seen others do what she and Burroughs did. And they seem to get by with it. But guys, that's not how we can determine whether what we're going to do is right or wrong by looking at what other people got by with. Catherine was not allowed to get by with it. Catherine was not allowed to make that decision against the will of God and remain unscathed. The Bible says, for unto whom much is given, much is required. And even though people had been saved and healed during their ministry, even after they were married, Catherine said they both felt empty and unsatisfied with themselves. Catherine said she no longer enjoyed ministry and she felt a sense of guilt hanging over her. And she said she could still sound the same and act the same, but she didn't feel the same. Something was missing and she could not Live without it. She and uh, Bros Waltrip would remain together as a married couple for almost six years. Many churches remained closed against them. And Catherine said the Lord brought her to a point where she had to make a choice. She realized that as long as she was with Burroughs, her ministry was compromised and it was weakened. And she couldn't do that anymore. She couldn't minister that way anymore. She said the Lord brought her to a choice. Would she serve the man she loved or the God she loved? That would be a heart rending decision for her because she truly truly loved Burroughs Waltrip 
she would never she never even looked at another man as romantic interest after that he was her one and only and she said this was the most painful choice she would ever make one afternoon Catherine had gone on a walk to meditate and pray and she said during that walk she encountered a sign that said dead end she looked at the sign and she knew what she had to do guys i love this in Catherine's case that dead end was about to become a fresh beginning and if we're at a point in our lives right now where we feel like Catherine, we're at that dead end if we turn to the lord that dead end can become a fresh beginning she said in later years on that day at 4 p.m., Catherine Kuhlman died, died to herself. She said, Dear Jesus, I surrender all. I give it all to you. Take my body. And take my heart. All I am is yours, and I place it in your wonderful hands. And something snapped, something changed. That day, Catherine left Burroughs with a train ticket to Pennsylvania. She had been invited there to hold a two-week revival, and she was going. It would be the last time she would see Burroughs. He would divorce her about four years later, but that was the last time that she ever saw him. Um, in later years, she did receive, I believe it was a Valentine's card from him. She never saw him again. I think he recognized, I think he really recognized that she was not his to have. And I love that he did not interfere with her ministry, that he let her go. Because that was a decision on his part, too, that had to be tough. We don't know what he, what his talks were with the Lord, but he made a decision, it would seem, to let her go. And so, he did ask her where she was headed after Franklin, Pennsylvania. And Catherine said, I don't know wherever the Lord will take me. She said it was like starting her ministry up all over again. And everywhere she went, rumors followed. People just could not leave it alone that she had married a divorced man. And that is just crazy. But that's, that's the way things were back then. Uh, things would be going great at a meeting and... People would be coming, and then someone would start gossiping, and everything would shut down. However, that didn't go on forever. She successfully restarted her ministry. Um, the rumors and all of that started to lose their hold on her ministry after she made that decision to give herself completely to the Lord. She would successfully restart her ministry. What the enemy aimed to destroy what the enemy aimed to derail the lord brought back on track and i think that's awesome that the lord has that wonderful power of restoration you know we read in the bible where lazarus had been in the tomb for three days and they said lord by this time he stinketh you know he's dead he's rotting even though he was a dead and rotting corpse, the restorative power of the Lord was able to bring him 
back to life. And that is what the Lord can do spiritually for us. We may be in a situation where spiritually we are a dead, rotting corpse. But the Lord can still bring life and renewal to us. That's what he did to Catherine's ministry. Her first set of meetings in Franklin reached 1,500 people a night. And guys, at that same year, Catherine branched out into radio. And, uh, you know, she was extremely intelligent. That radio station was shocked at her level of knowledge about radio technology. And so there in the uh, mid-1940s, her preaching and teaching ministry began to grow. In her radio ministry especially, um, apparently she was uh, quite an adventure for the radio station staff. You know, another aspect of that dramatic personality. They initially had to bolt the microphone down because Catherine just couldn't keep still and stay at the microphone. And later they just got a boom mic and followed her with it because she just couldn't be still. Eventually she would move to Pittsburgh and would continue with the radio broadcast there. So what we see is here is the Lord restoring her ministry. It just thrills me to think about that, that what the devil intended to utterly, absolutely destroy, um, the Lord didn't allow. So let's talk about her new ministry. She was working very hard at building up her one successful ministry. She put Burl Waltrips behind her, never seriously looked back. It's not that she didn't think about it. It's not that she didn't wonder. It's not that she never questioned what she did, but she didn't look back seriously enough to go back to him or try to initiate contact with him again. So she built up the radio ministry. She was holding services in Pennsylvania, and then... People began to get quietly healed in Catherine's meetings. Initially, she did not preach on healing, but she would pray for healing and even had a couple of healing lines where she would pray for people. And she said the results were not impressive, but they were there. So Catherine began to study what the Bible says about healing and began to preach about it based on the Bible. And she had more questions than answers which should never discourage us when trying to learn about something. She couldn't understand why so few people were being healed. And so she decided to attend a meeting held by a well-known healing ministry. I don't know who it was. I am 95% sure it was not Oral Roberts because of their close relationship, ministerial relationship in later years. But she went to one of these meetings, and she came away from that meeting weeping and brokenhearted. She said that meeting was the nightmare come to life. And she could not forget the look of despair on the faces of those who were not healed. Those who were not healed were told their lack of faith was keeping them from healing. And Catherine said she could not believe that a God of mercy and compassion that she served would ever handle things this way. And she commented, they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And she said, what was the key? Have you guys ever been 
in that situation where you had a health problem, it was absolutely desperate. You had nowhere left to turn. And think about, and maybe you've experienced this, think about how heartbreaking it would be to be told that the reason that you were still sick was you didn't have enough faith. It was thrown back on you that you were failing in some way. It's, it's really frustrating and heartbreaking. So Catherine said, well, what was the key? Was it faith? Faith in what? Whose faith? The person that's sick? The person that's praying for him? The church? How did one build faith? These are all such very practical questions, and that's one of the things I love about Catherine. She never dealt in abstract theoretical stuff, like it's God's will for you to be healed and just leave it at that. No, she got down to brass tacks, as they say. She said that she believed. Now, and before I go any further, let me preface this by saying that Catherine held meetings where so many people were being healed. And these people that were healed would go back to their doctors and there would be x-ray proof, doctor testimony, medical proof that they were healed. And those were the testimonies that she would share. If they could not provide medical evidence of their healing, that testimony was not shared. So she had tons of, of proven healings from very, very serious disorders. And there were many of them. We have not had another healing ministry like that. And I will challenge, if someone wants to challenge me on this, I would be more than happy to discuss it. So keep in mind, that's who's asking these questions. The woman that is going to have people healed in her audience, some of them without her ever touching them. One of them was a, a cop from Houston, Texas. She's the one that's saying, Lord, is the key faith? Faith in what? Whose faith? How does one build faith? This is the woman asking these questions. Catherine believed untold harm was done by attributing everything to a lack of faith on the part of the individual. So she turned to the word of God and began to both study and pray in search for an answer. Her faith shifted, this is so important, from a faith in healings to a strong and unshakable faith in God. It was not. It is not faith in an evangelist. It is not faith in a prophet. It is not faith in a healer. It is not faith in the doctrine of healing, but it is a faith in God that brings the healing. And the fact that she might not experience a miracle or be part of one, she said, did not change the fact that Jesus had provided healing for us. And she went on to say that even if she never personally saw another miracle in her life, she believed the Bible was true. Now, a woman was healed of a tumor in one of her meetings, and she had her healing verified by a doctor and testified at the next meeting. And I love this. Catherine was as shocked as everyone else. Can you imagine? You end up being one of the world-famous healing evangelists in the first medically verifiable healing that takes place in your shock. I love that. I love her openness and down-to-earth attitude. And she said in that service, there was no healing line. There were no prayers for healing. There was simply a sermon on the power of the Holy Spirit. It was not even a sermon on healing. This was all God. This was all the Lord. This was not Catherine's doing. And she would tell people over and over, I heal no one. Jesus Christ does the healing. 
And that's where I always get uncomfortable when a minister is saying, you know, I will heal you. I I know they present it that way a lot on TV when they're doing shows that have um, a character that is an evangelist. But guys, the real preachers that have prayed and seen healings will never say that they healed anyone. To truly have that power flowing through them, they know that it is from God and they will never, ever accept credit for it. So, at this time, Catherine was holding a me- holding meetings in the Gospel Tabernacle. That is a place that was once used by um, baseball player turned evangelist Billy Sunday, and Catherine was drawing even bigger crowds than he did. It was the uh, Gospel Tabernacle in Franklin, Pennsylvania. She had paid for access to the tabernacle in part by paying its managers with a cut of proceeds from the offering. And she began to draw larger and larger and larger crowds. And he began to demand a 25% cut, which was much greater than what their contract had stated. So Catherine resisted. She got locked out of the building. So Catherine resisted and was locked out. And she let her followers know. And a brawl broke out between some of the men that followed her ministry and some of um, the tabernacle's manager, Maloney. And Catherine's guys won. (laughs) However, Maloney took things to court and sued Catherine. The court told Catherine that while the lawsuit was proceeding, she could not hold services in the gospel tabernacle. So Catherine said that she and her followers should obey the law with this. They shouldn't try to force this, you know, let the court handle the legal aspects of this. And she rented a skating rink. And Catherine was back on the front page. And the publicity caused even more people to learn about her meetings she was holding. And so even more people started to come because, you know, they wanted to see what the big deal was about. And she continued holding meetings in the skating rink, a.k.a. Sugar Creek Auditorium. And her followers eventually got the money together to purchase it. And it was renamed Faith Temple. And it turned out to be a lot bigger than the gospel tabernacle that she had been holding meetings in. Things were going well for her. And then, yep, and then Burroughs Waltrip filed for divorce. Sheriff showed up at his door in plain clothes to serve the papers, and he explained he was going to keep this quiet. She was doing so much good for the crime-riddled community that he served. So he, you know, he didn't show up in his sheriff's uniform. He showed up plain clothes, and Catherine was eternally grateful for his discretion. And for the rest of his life, she would send him flowers on his birthday. So, um... Catherine's next move would be to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, but she was reluctant. In fact, this is funny, she told an associate that the Ruth on Faith Temple would have to cave in before she'd move. I bet you guys can guess exactly what happened. Yet the biggest snowfall that Pennsylvania had ever seen occurred in 1950, 40 inches in three days, and the roof of Faith Temple caved in. So Catherine decided, yep, this was definitely a sign, and she bought a home in Fox Chapel, a Pittsburgh suburb, and moved her ministry to Pittsburgh. 
she was holding meetings in Carnegie Hall, and they were going very well. And local pastors were intimidated and no doubt jealous and began to lead pickets and demonstrations against her, accusing her of stealing sheep. And I love what she said. It's got just a little bit of sass to it. She said, I'm not stealing sheep. I'm just feeding a flock of starving lambs. Yeah. Uh, now, those attacks, however, were just the beginning. It only makes sense that someone that was doing a work for the Lord, like Catherine was, would come under attack from the enemy. Okay? So, 1952, she joins Rex and Maud Amy Humbard and headed to Akron, Ohio. Now, they were others that were very successful in, uh, I think, in radio, but I do know in television. They were in uh, Akron, Ohio, and that's where things were about to get very ugly. Catherine and the Humbards together were able to fill up a 15,000 capacity tent with ease. However, Akron was home of Dallas Billington. He was what we would now call a megachurch pastor. He hated faith healers. He hated the Humbards, but even more, he hated Catherine. And he was determined to out Catherine as a fraud. And he attacked Catherine and the Humbards publicly and in the press. And he did his dead level to destroy them, but especially he aimed at Catherine. Now, Catherine, in this instance, made a mistake. She broke her rule of not publicly engaging with the enemy. Billington offered money to anyone that could prove a healing that had actually taken place in one of Catherine's meetings. So Catherine thought, oh, I'll take up the challenge and I'll prove to people that God heals. And she provided documentation from a doctor that solidly demonstrated a healing had taken place. Do you know what Billington did? He withdrew the offer and said, I just wanted to show you all that these faith healers were just in it for the money. She just had to get that reward money. Mm -hmm. Now, I know that wasn't true of Catherine. If you listen to this, you know that wasn't true of Catherine. However, had she not taken the bait, he would have claimed that the healings weren't real. So it was kind of between a rock and a hard place. Now, during this mess, her previous marriage hit the papers too. Now, with that, no one seemed to care about uh, the previous marriages anymore. But Billington's attacks on Catherine and the Humbards kept going. And here's the thing. What the devil meant for bad, the Lord turned for good. He can always do that. The publicity that this mega church pastor was giving to Catherine and the Humbards provided more publicity than they could have ever afforded to pay for. Now, Catherine regretted engaging with Billington. She said that for someone is established in the faith, this whole back and forth between Dallas Billington might be entertaining. But she said she could cause someone to lose their faith in God if they aren't well grounded. And she felt her responsibility was to try to minimize the potential of that happening. And she went on to publicly say that the behavior she and Billington both exhibited was very unchristian. She admitted she had made a mistake, that her behavior was unchristian and sinful and repented of it. Now, the meeting after that whole brouhaha is 
uh, they say, was over. Catherine and the Humbards had 400 people come to the altar and give their hearts to the Lord. Dallas Billington only had four people come to the altar in his church. Now, let's talk a little bit more about Catherine's views on healing. She repeatedly emphasized that she had never healed anyone. She didn't have not a sliver of power to heal someone. That was just absolutely impossible. She could heal no one. It was the power of God that healed. She insisted on this over and over and made sure people understood this. It was not her. In fact, when she was leading her meetings, her entire goal was to get people to focus on the Lord because she knew when you could get a large group of people focused on the Lord, when you could get a group of Christians focused on the Lord, the power of God was that much more free to flow, was that much more intense. It was all the Lord. And Catherine would later write numerous books with stories of healing and stories of how Jesus had healed people and doctors had verified it. And she refused to accept praise from anyone and constantly pointed them to the Lord as their source. And no one knew better than Catherine what the source of that healing power was. Now, as Catherine's ministry grows, the radio program and the talks, they led to books. Books led to more books, many of them filled with testimonies of healing. And then you have books and radio programs that led to a television ministry. And as with everything Catherine did, she insisted on the highest quality for the Lord. And so if you've ever seen um, pictures of any of her maybe's ever seen videos of uh, videos of her television ministry, Everything was done very tastefully. I mean, a little bit flamboyant. It's Catherine, after all. But it's all done very tastefully, very professionally. I remember one episode, and if you go on YouTube, you can find some of these episodes. She talked to Corey Tinboom, who had, um, you know, she and her family had hid uh, Jewish people during World War II. Uh, most of her family died in a concentration camp. And she came out of that Corey came out of that concentration tramp, camp with a worldwide ministry. She's one of the people that Catherine interviewed. Catherine would interview people that had been healed. And she wanted to draw out their stories to share. The, I love it. It's with Catherine in those television episodes. It wasn't all about her. It was all about Jesus. Now, um... Catherine, as I've said, she was not perfect. She did indeed outright lie about her age. And there were times that she lied about her marriage to Waltrip, insisting she fainted during the vows and never signed the marriage license knowingly. Perhaps a better term for that uh, would be twisting the truth, but when it comes down to it, it is all dishonesty. Now, part of this deceitful tendency might be explained by an experience from her young years back when Roosevelt was running for president. She was staying with a couple of uh, older ladies, and um, one of them had campaigned vigorously to keep uh, Roosevelt from getting back in office, and she failed. And the other lady that was with them told Catherine she was afraid to tell the first lady that Roosevelt had been elected. She was afraid of the effect it would have on her health. 
but she talked with Catherine, and this other lady went up, and she broke the news to her friend that he had campaigned so hard to keep Roosevelt from getting in office that he had indeed been elected. She was expecting, you know, she was going to have to get smelling salts, all that. The lady just said, well, we'll just pretend it never happened. And I think that may have been what Catherine did. It would have been so easy to allow herself mm -hmm. to have been held back by some of the things that she did. And I think she just took the uh, approach, I'm just going to pretend like it never happened. But sometimes she took it too far and actually said it didn't happen when it did. But that was wrong. I'm not going to justify what she did with that. I'm not going to justify it. It was wrong. Um, now, her services, her healing services got bigger and bigger and bigger until thousands of people were attending. And Catherine... During many of those services, she would try to keep the focus on herself. When you've got several, you've got more than a thousand people in one place, it's hard to get them focused. And as I said, she tried to keep people focused on Jesus. And so she would try to keep them focused on herself. Some people accused her of being um, a stage hog. You know, she would have uh, her pianist, Dino Karsanakis, she would have him playing. But they said she, it would seem like she was trying to get people's attention back to her. Her reasoning behind that was trying to keep them focused. Now, that's what that's what she uh, said she did. And she put everything she had into every one of those meetings. Every ounce of her being, every bit of energy, everything of her, she threw into those meetings and she wore herself out, especially as the meetings got larger and larger. And what she would do is she would start the meeting out and she would preach. She didn't immediately go to healing or anything like that. She would preach until she felt the Holy Spirit. And then she, because she knew nothing would happen if the Holy Spirit wasn't working in the service. Now, in later years, it took longer and longer for the meetings to reach that point where the healings took place. I could conjecture on a lot of reasons why that might have happened. Um, I won't, but those healings still took place. And those that were with Catherine as she was in the wings preparing to go out on the stage said that she would pace and pray before the meeting started, pleading, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. She was not bouncing out there with confidence and her confidence was in the Lord. And she knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that if the Lord did not go out on that platform with her, nothing would happen. After the meetings, it was not uncommon for her to collapse in tears and exhaustion. Heartbroken over the people that didn't get healed. Heartbroken over people that didn't get saved and just absolutely worn out. And she got where she was so busy, she didn't have time to prepare sermons like she did in the past. That might be why it took longer for the meetings to reach the point where healings took place. And I said I wouldn't conjecture on that, and I did. Um, she started using note cards of previous sermons. And Catherine just kept pushing and pushing and pushing. She had been to the doctor and she knew she had an enlarged heart, and she kept pushing. 
Uh, sometimes we use really bad judgment when it comes to our health. There was a, a Scottish missionary named McShane. And um, he died in his 20s. And when he was sick, he said, Lord, I'm paraphrasing just a wee bit. I'm not going to use the old-fashioned English he did. Lord, you gave me a message to carry and a horse to ride. And I've gone and killed the horse. He'd gone and worn himself out physically to the point that he could no longer minister. And Catherine had worn herself out to the point that she was having a hard time staying on top of things. And she was going to fall into bad judgment again. But this time it didn't involve romance. So let's talk about that. Catherine's health grew worse and worse. And she ignored the pains in her chest. And I will be honest with you, she was never healed of this. This, this woman that poured all of her energy into seeing people saved and healed was not healed. I have no answer why. Neither did Catherine. That's one of the things that just there's not an answer for. And again, we could conjecture. I don't even have, I couldn't even conjecture on this one. I don't have any idea of my own why things worked out that way. But she was sick toward the end of her life. She had been paid by friends. One of them was her pianist. Dino Carsonakis, that she helped him so much um, by having him play at her meetings. It made him famous, and he and his brother turned on her, um, and she was sick, very sick. She was exhausted. She didn't know who to trust, and she pulled away from old friends and colleagues and began to depend on new friends, including a used car salesman from Oklahoma named Tink Wilkerson. He and his wife appeared in her life about four years before her death. And so, as you can probably guess, we're getting to the end of Catherine's, getting closer to the end of Catherine's story. Um, Catherine turned everything over to this mysterious couple. She had met them while holding meetings for Oral Roberts in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, and I think nobody realized truly how sick Catherine was. She had open heart surgery performed in 1976 in Los Angeles. I want to say it was at Mount Sinai. She was 69 years old at the time. Um, and during this time, Tink became the major beneficiary of her will and left she left half her estate to him. Now, her estate consisted of, um, you know, her writings and all of that, um, and it consisted of her clothes and a lot of expensive jewelry that had been given to her. So there was some, um, there was some wealth involved with that. Um, she never completely recovered from that surgery. And I might be wrong. It might have been 1975. I've got two different dates here in my notes, so I apologize for that. But either in 75 or 76, she had the surgery. She didn't recover. And um, she passed away in February at a hospital in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Now, that part always makes me sad. I always hate dealing with the part where someone dies. Um... 
But I know that she went to be with the Lord. And I know that she was free from the heavy burden that she had carried for so many years as a minister. And guys, she had touched people's lives the world over. People were healed. People were saved. People were delivered from drugs and alcohol and cigarettes. And people found the Lord. And finding the Lord is the most important thing. She brought the message of the gospel in a way that all different denominations were willing to listen. People that had been raised in different denominations and had drifted from the Lord, they could listen to her without feeling that their their uh, their background was being threatened. So many came to the Lord through her ministry. So many people were given an opportunity to have their own ministry through Catherine's uh, efforts and through her willingness to share. And I'm going to wrap this up with two things. One of them, two quotes. One of them, Catherine said, I am not a woman with great faith. I am a woman with a little faith in the great God. That is so biblical. The Bible tells us if we have just the faith the size of a mustard seed, that mountains can be moved. That's what she was emphasizing. The second thing is was kind of her her motto. Um, she had a a book with this title, and I believe it was how she opened all her television episodes. And I'm going to try to say it a little bit in her her cadence. She would say, "I believe in miracles because I believe in God." That guys is the kind of faith that we need to have. We may not hold meetings like Catherine. We may not see. People healed, but that's the faith that we need in our daily lives. And if we have just the faith of a tiny mustard seed, then we can see God move in our hearts and in our lives and in the situations that we face and in those with whom uh, we interact. So that's the Catherine Kuhlman story. She was not perfect. But she believed in God. And she talked about, even though she wasn't perfect, you know, she kept her heart up to date. When she did things wrong, she would repent of them. And she said when she stands before God, and this was probably not many years before her death, but when she stands before God, that she would be perfect in the sight of God because of the work Jesus had done. It was Jesus in her. Any Every good thing in her came from Jesus. And so... I want to leave you with that. Um, Like I said, my mom had tons of Catherine Coleman books. I grew up with Catherine Coleman books, seeing their picture on there, and then got my hands on a a video, and uh, the Internet came along, and I found the uh, Catherine Coleman Foundation, from which you can still get reprints of many of her books, and I believe you can get uh, CDs and DVDs of her teachings. There's videos on, um, on Facebook, and she was controversial, and... She was criticized by many. But there's one thing that nobody would ever accuse Catherine of doing, and that was of serving the Lord half-heartedly. That's an excellent role model for her. And one of the greatest lessons that we can take from Catherine's life is that when we reach a dead end, a dead end that could very well be all our own fault, that the Lord can turn a dead end into a fresh beginning.
So I hope you enjoyed this. Thank you for listening.